Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's David. I'm the assistant pastor here at Mortland Road Church. And uh, can I just say that if you're tuning in uh, online as a visitor, somebody uh, perhaps from our church has invited you to come along and watch, uh, can I just say welcome? Uh, it's good to have you with us. Um, we are thinking about this uh, part of scripture this morning, uh, Luke 23. And you will have noticed uh, straight away uh, that the bulk of this uh, part of the Bible is concerned with the death of Jesus. Uh, that's what's happening. In fact, uh, all of the Bible writers, uh, the gospel writers rather, there are four gospels, four portraits of Jesus in the Bible, and each of them are all moves towards this event when Jesus is crucified. It's a big event. Uh, Jesus himself uh, has been uh, betrayed uh, by a close friend. He's been abandoned by his close friends. He's been uh, beaten, he's been mocked, he's probably bloody, he's carried a cross up a hill, he has been uh, through an unfair trial, he's been judged falsely, uh, and there he is, uh, crucified, with uh, sinners on either side of him. Each of the Gospel writers uh, wants to tell us this story. But the thing is, why? Why are we reading about an innocent man in Jerusalem being crucified? And why do these four gospel writers all make a focus of this event? Can I say right at the start that understanding this, why Jesus died, is one of the most important things that we need to understand today. It's more important than the coronavirus. The coronavirus is going to come and go. At some point, it will be gone. But the relevance of Jesus dying will continue to remain the same. And so what we're going to think about together this morning is uh, four things, uh, four little sections. So if you're trying to follow along and you've got kiddies there with you, uh, just kind of grab onto that. We're going to think about four things. We're going to think about uh, darkness, curtain, Jesus and response. The first two, darkness and curtain, are about the meaning of Jesus's death. And that's what we're going to think about first. We're going to think about the meaning of Jesus's death. Why are we listening to uh, a story about Jesus dying? Okay, in order to understand that, uh, we are going to um, have to go back in time to one of the old prophets uh, in Israel. There's a man named Amos. But before I read it, I just want to highlight a little portion uh, from chapter 23 that we, three there that we read. <clears throat> it was about a phenomena that happened while Jesus is on the cross. I don't know if you noticed it. It was in verse 44. It says that uh, in verse 44 there, it says, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. So it gets dark. What is going on? Well, what's happening is Luke is giving us a clue. He's telling us this is a sign that gives us a clue about the significance, about the meaning of Jesus's death. So <clears throat> going back to Amos, this old prophet, hundreds of years before, he's talking about the day when God will come and judge Israel for their sins. And this is what he says. He says, on that day, declares the Lord God, 
I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Darkness in the Bible, a day of darkness, is a day of judgment. That is what is happening at the cross. That's the first thing. Darkness. Darkness means judgment. Right. <clears throat> How is this happening? How is Israel being judged when Jesus is dying? Okay. Bear with me. Let's travel along for a little bit. This is probably the most tricky part of the sermon uh, to follow along with, but you can do it. Right. <clears throat> the thing to understand is that Jesus himself is Israel. In fact, Jesus is also all of humanity. So it's not just that Israel is being judged when Jesus dies on the cross. It's actually that all of humanity is being judged. It's God's verdict on the world. Here's how we can understand that. Earlier on in Luke's gospel, in chapter four, Jesus has this episode where he's out in the wilderness. <clears throat> now, he's out there for 40 days, and those 40 days mirror the 40 days that Israel spent, a long time before that, wandering around in the wilderness, the 40 years that they wandered around uh, after they left Egypt. Luke is trying to help us to understand that we're supposed to see Jesus as representing Israel. Jesus is Israel. But at the same time, uh, if you know that story, you will know that Jesus is tempted by the devil about food. That's one of the things the devil tries to tempt him about. And the thing is, in the Bible, when somebody is uh, uh, right at the beginning of the Bible, there's another person that's tempted by the devil with food. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. <clears throat> and so Luke is alerting us to the fact that Jesus, the way that we're supposed to understand him, is that he is. Israel and he is the new Adam. He represents Israel and he represents all of humanity. And so therefore what's happening when Jesus is dying on the cross and it goes dark for three hours, it's a sign that what is happening in this moment is this is God's verdict on humanity. This is God's verdict on our choices, on our thoughts, on our words and on our actions. Jesus is being punished for that. That is what's happening. We are being punished, judged in this moment. That's the significance there of what's happening with darkness. And Luke alerts us to that so that we would understand the meaning of Jesus's death. <clears throat> now, straight away, we might think, <clears throat> gosh, this is a bit overdone, isn't it? Uh, that our judgment that, that God's verdict on us would be dying. Let me help you uh, just for a moment now to try to uh, perhaps uh, understand why this is a good and right thing for God. I suspect that the reason why we think that, the, that God's verdict on us would be that we deserve to die is seen as a little bit over, over, um, overdoing it is because we've lost the holiness of God. Now, thinking about ourselves for a minute, uh, we are people who compare morals. That's what we do. Uh, we notice it in ourselves every time we say of another person, <coughs> uh, I can't believe they did dot, 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 or I wouldn't do dot, dot, dot. 
what we're doing is we're saying that behavior is below us. That behavior is actually really ugly. It's wrong. That behavior is not right. Not only so, but we're also people who have a real concern for justice, right? We don't just think that some things are right and some things are wrong and some things are below us. We actually have a real concern for justice. And we see that when we are wronged. So the truth is, we're people who are very concerned for morals. We're very concerned about justice. And that is a God-given impulse. This present coronavirus uh, has been great to illustrate that. Uh, you might have seen some of the posts about people who have been gathering up toilet paper. Uh, I've been shocked by the kind of language uh, that is used uh, concerning people who get all the toilet paper or about people who go outside and don't follow uh, the restrictions. People are effing and blinding. They're swearing it up, you know, cursing people out for gathering up all the toilet paper, which th the, the assumption is I wouldn't do that. That's, that's terrible behavior or for going out when they shouldn't be. Um, and they're thinking, how selfish, how unbelievably selfish this is wrong and what we do is we actually by the way that we express it we show we really care about this and we think it's worth judging we think it's worth punishing in fact now the truth is when we think about god we must realize that he is infinitely holier than we are he is infinitely more pure than we are he is infinitely more right and righteous than we are and so when he looks down on our deeds he sees us all the time, completely self-absorbed, self, self, self. We are totally selfish. And there is a demand for justice. This is not right. And the truth is, we deserve to die. We are really that bad. And Jesus on the cross, God is showing us that's the verdict. That's really, really serious. Now, what we're supposed to see then is uh, when Jesus dies, we're supposed to see the death of Israel, the death of humanity. And because this cuts both ways, we could see our death as well. So, for example, Paul, one of the writers in the Bible, uh, says he can say this about himself. He can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. How can he say that? Because he sees Jesus's death on the cross as being his own death. Now, the thing is, it's not automatic. It doesn't happen automatically. But we can make Jesus's death our death by faith. In fact, it's an offer. It's an offer that the punishment, the judgment that is rightly deserved by us for our sin can happen in Jesus instead. He can actually take our punishment for us. And the reality is that if we don't put ourselves in that position and acknowledge that and embrace that, we ourselves will have to face that punishment in hell for eternity on the final day when God raises us all from the dead and uh, sits on his throne for the final judgment. This is of, a, of, of incredible importance, the death of Jesus, and it continues to be relevant for today. We're going to talk a little bit more about how to respond uh, towards the end. But for now, I just want to say, it is possible that Jesus's death really becomes your death, that judgment can pass you and be taken by Jesus. 
Okay, that's the first sign. That's Luke's telling us about the significance of the death. The second sign is uh, the sign of the curtain. So you might have seen sign of the curtain. Here we go. Uh, you might have seen that uh, in verse 45 straight away. Sorry, let me get my Bible. <coughs> straight away, he says, after it goes dark, he says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple's torn in two. What's going on there? Well, Luke takes us to a completely different um, bunch of imagery. Now he's talking about the temple. He's talking about priests. Uh, he brings to our mind uh, sacrifices. And that's what we're supposed to be thinking about. Jesus's death has got something to do with the temple. Now, the thing about the curtain is that the curtain itself uh, was a curtain inside the temple. It was a curtain that separated the holy part of the temple from the most holy part of the temple. And in the most holy part of the temple was uh, symbolic of where God dwelt. The curtain itself was, um, had embroidered on it uh, angels. And these angels, together with all of the um, symbolism inside the temple, uh, were to remind the Israelites that this was um, uh, a, a, a physical construction that represented the Garden of Eden. I don't know if you remember this part of the Bible story, but when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden for their sin, an angel is placed at the entrance of the garden, guarding the way back into the, um, uh, like, a, like a big stop sign, uh, guarding the way back into the garden so that Adam and Eve couldn't return. So when the Israelites are aware that this curtain has got this angel embroidered on it and God is in behind it, uh, it is constantly reminding them that the way back to God hasn't been made open yet. That's what the curtain is about. That's what the curtain symbolizes. Uh, now, thinking about the history of Israel, what they would have done for years and years and years is they would have celebrated once a year uh, this day called the Day of Atonement. And that was the one time in the year when uh, anybody could go through that curtain into the place where God was. Um, and it was only the high priest and he had to do all of these um, different ceremonial uh, actions and he had to sacrifice an animal and take its blood in there. Uh, and that day was a day when the priest would go in, he would represent the people. And in fact, it was a day when the sins of the people were covered. It was a day when the whole nation reset, as it were. It was a day when uh, they became holy. Uh, it was a day when all of their uncleanness, all of their shame, all of their sin was washed away. And it was like a brand new start for a brand new year. This was the day of atonement. And it was the day when the high priest, the top priest, could go through uh, that curtain. Uh, and that moment was a, a sweet moment of relationship. It was a moment of we um, are, are coming back into relationship with God. But once that high priest left, that curtain was once again closed and the people were reminded every single year, although we have a way back to God, we really only have a partial way. There must be a better way. It begged for something more. And now, so what happens at the, at the cross? Jesus is dying. And Luke tells us that the curtain of the temple is actually torn in two. Jesus himself is the lamb, the lamb that has been shown to be spotless. He was innocent. And he is, being, he is giving himself up as a sacrifice for sin. 
but this sacrifice is different. This is the final sacrifice. This is the sacrifice that actually rips the curtain right in half and opens up the way back to God and back to a relationship with him. So while this death um, is on the one hand, darkness coming over the land, judgment, God's punishment on our sin, at the same time, it is a way for us to be reconciled to God. God is judging and saving in one moment with Jesus on the cross. This is an incredible, incredible reality. God, in all of his wisdom, has uh, orchestrated all things so that we can be saved and so that he doesn't jeopardize justice and holiness uh, in order to achieve that. That's the first two, uh, they're just two signs in our passage, we can speak about lots more, about the significance and the meaning of Jesus' death. And every year as Easter comes around, there's this big focus, Jesus died. This is why. Because our sins deserve death. And because God made a way for sinners like us to go back into relationship with him, back into the garden, back into life with and for God. Right. That's the first little section uh, that I wanted to focus on this morning and focus on in these verses. I just want to talk about two other little things before we finish our time. And I just think they're sweet. Um, the first one is just a sweet little thing that we can see in these verses about the character of Jesus. So we're just going to think about the character of Jesus. What's he like? Jesus, our Lord. And I think these verses show us uh, Jesus's character. Uh, by the words that he speaks. Jesus only speaks four times uh, in, in these verses. Uh, and each time he speaks, it shows something amazing about what he's like. The first time that he speaks is in response to the women uh, who are weeping for him as he's walking up the hill to be crucified. And he turns to them and he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Weep for the destruction that is coming upon Jerusalem. Right when it would have been easy uh, to think about himself, he's still speaking words of truth and love to the people that he wants to repent. He calls them daughters of Jerusalem. He's, signif he's signaling that I'm speaking to the nation here. I'm speaking to you, but I'm speaking to the whole nation, even still. And I'm saying, weep for yourselves. Repent, even now, as I'm on the way to the cross. Repent. Turn, because judgment is coming. Jesus, still thinking of others, still speaking truth, hard truth in a hard moment. That's the character of Jesus. Never compromising truth and looking out for others. That's the first thing he says. Um, the second thing is this amazing grace that we see about Jesus. Right? While he's on the cross, he says... Uh, three things, but the first two things he says are, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Right? He's on the cross. He's been there for three hours from, uh, well, I don't know how long when he says these words, but he's going to hang there for three hours from 12 until noon. He must be in agony. Right? These people are mocking him. He couldn't have been more uh, mistreated um, uh, unjustly. Right? He's, he's a guy who's got every reason to pour out vengeance on these people. But instead, he says, Father, forgive them. 
And why do they need forgiveness? Because they don't know what they're doing. They're killing the son of God. They are showing, actually, if God comes to us, this is what we want to do with him. We want him out of the picture so we can be the boss. But even there, Jesus has words of grace. Forgive them. Now, that's what he says. In contrast to that, you've got all of these words um, from the different people who are watching. You've got uh, the rulers mocking him. You, they're, they're teasing him. Oh, if you're, the, if you're really the Christ, if you're really God's chosen one. Uh, you've got the soldiers likewise mocking, gambling with his stuff, uh, giving him sour, sour vinegar to drink. You've got the criminal on the other side saying, uh, jeering at him. If you're really the guy who can save us, why don't you do something about it? And in that context, Jesus's words, Father, forgive them, stand out as words of grace. And they show us the character of God. And what happens when somebody does turn to him like the other criminal who acknowledges his sin? What does he say? He says, today you will be with me in paradise, right? He's only said three things so far. He's got words of truth and he's got words of grace because that is what Jesus is full of. And the last thing is that we can see Jesus's confidence. He's remarkably confident. He's not a guy who's out of control in this situation. At any point when you would think Jesus was out of control, it might be here. He's totally not out of control. And we can see it in some of the things that have already been said. So let's have a, have a think about it. He's, he's walking up the hill. He's, he's, he's beaten and these women are weeping for him. And he turns to them and he says, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. I'm the one that's actually on the way to the cross, right? I'm the one that's beaten and bloody and bruised and crown a thorn on my head. Don't weep for me. I'm actually not in trouble. Right now, I am not in trouble. The people are in trouble, right? That's the first thing. Absolute confidence. Jesus is not out of control. Second thing is the thief turns to him, right, on the cross. He's talking to a guy who's hanging on a cross and he says, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus says to him, right, today you're going to be with me in paradise, right? It looks right now like I'm hanging on a cross, okay? But what's happening is I'm about to enter paradise. That's what's happening right now. I'm in complete control here and I've got total confidence about what's going on. I am a king and I'm about to enter into my kingdom. And the last one is his final words. Four things is all that Jesus says. And his final words are, Father, he knows who he is. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Complete trust right up to the end. This is Jesus. This is who we worship and serve. Now, last thing, a response. What are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? There are a whole bunch of characters in this part of Luke's gospel. All kinds of characters with all kinds of different backgrounds and all kinds of responses. I'm just going to bring up a few. The first is the rulers. You've got the religious rulers. These are the people who represent those among us who don't think they need saving. They represent the people among us who think that we're pretty good. Those represent the people among us who think, I do all right. I do the right thing. I certainly am not that bad. I don't need somebody to die for me. We're the people that because we think we're so good, we think we're safe, we think we're fine, we don't need a crucified saviour. That's the rulers. Is that you? 
Second one is the soldiers. You've got the soldiers who are gambling. They're casting lots for Jesus's clothing. They are giving him sour vinegar to drink. For them, you know what? It's just all not that serious, right? This whole thing, this Jesus thing, um, it's just a bit too serious. That's not where I'm at with life. I'm here, having, I'm having a bit of fun. I'm gambling. It's a bit of sport if I can get it out of that. I'm not really interested in religion. Thank you. That's the soldiers. Uh, is that you? Are you missing something because you're uh, taking life uh, too jokingly? <clears throat> the next is uh, the first criminal. He's the guy who's angry at God. He's the guy who uh, doesn't want to take responsibility for his own sin, even though it's blindingly obvious to everybody else. He's clearly guilty. He's, he's clearly done the wrong thing. He knows he's done the wrong thing, but he's not. He's so focused still on himself that he'd actually rather rail at God and say, why haven't you got me out of this situation if you can, rather than owning up to the responsibility of himself that's got himself uh, into that position in the first place. He's the criminal that's so, the first criminal is, is the person who's so busy with their own problems, but they're all problems that come from outside. They're not ready to own and accept um, their own responsibility, their own sin uh, that they've done, and they're angry at God. Two more characters, two more different responses, and these ones are more positive. Uh, the first is the centurion. Uh, the centurion who, uh, when he sees Jesus crucified in this way, he sees the darkness over the sky. He says, something's going on here. And you get a he hears the words of Jesus, uh, remarkable, strange words. What's really going on? And he sees something in Jesus. Surely this man was innocent. The question is, will this centurion, when he's seen something about Jesus, something attractive, something unique, something special, Will he go on to explore more? Will he go on to find out the full truth and the full story and follow the saviour and enter into paradise as well? That's the centurion. And the last one is the second criminal. And he really is the right response. He's the one who sees that his sin, what he's done, is worthy of death. He's the guy who's ready to acknowledge that. He's the guy who's ready to say, actually, I need to fear God. God is holy. And I've done the wrong thing. And actually, I see in this man, Jesus, right here, an innocent man, a man who's dying, uh, not uh, for his own sin, but for some other reason. And this uh, Jesus here, he's the king of Israel. He's God's man. And I'm going to follow him because he's going to enter into a kingdom and I want to be with him where he is. So I'm going I'm to turn to him and I'm going to ask him to remember me to have mercy on me, to think of me when he enters into his kingdom. And that guy is the one guy who gets said to him, today, you will be with me in paradise. This is Jesus. This is why he has died on the cross. And the question is, what response are we going to make about it? Today, in days to come, we're going to acknowledge our sin. Are we going to turn to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness? And are we going to look to him and follow him with all of our lives? I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll um, sing a song. 
Father in heaven, we give you thanks uh, for giving us this part of your word. Thank you for showing us your son once again. Thank you that he died for our sins. Uh, thank you that he made a way back into relationship with you. Um, and Lord, we pray that you'd give us soft hearts. We pray that you would give us faith and we pray that you'd help us to see the truth of what's really going on with Jesus on the cross. Amen.